you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, this is the Word of God. It will indeed last forever. Starting in verse 1, he, this is Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And... He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he's about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you speak now in the preaching of your word, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. One of the great joys of the Bible and reading kind of large chunks of it with a little bit of intention, a little bit of focus, not just reading it for kind of, you know, checking a box, getting through passages, but uh, reading to understand is that you get to experience kind of the diversity of emotional states and styles and parts and pieces of the Bible. There are some parts of the Bible that are incredibly happy. And if you kind of read it and match the emotional tone, it's like, wow, this is a really happy passage. It was fun. And you have some that are sad. Some that are so terribly sad, it's hard to read at times. Some that are gruesome. I mean, so grim that, Interestingly, some of your English translations even kind of minimize how grim they are because some of the words are so graphic and gross. Some parts of the Bible are mysterious, so as you read, it's hard to understand, and it's confusing, and some parts stimulate our imagination, and I don't understand what's going on in parts of Revelation and what we can see and imagine. Some parts, if we actually pay attention to the text, are intense, and you would kind of be on the edge of your seat, and some of them, some of the ones that I enjoy the most, are spectacularly awkward. Like, if you had been there in that moment in time, it would have been so uncomfortable, so awkward, you would have broken a sweat. Whew, it would be bad. 
but some of my favorite parts of the Bible are where they're just downright funny. And the passage that we have tonight is, hopefully, I hope you're going to see at the end of this, hysterical. This is in that category of funny passages, like the one where you have the talking donkey, right? Jonah getting eaten by the fish and puked up on the shore, then him pouting and throwing a temper tantrum like a toddler sitting up on the hill at the end of the book. Ehud, the judge Ehud, basically one gigantic poop joke. The entire section of the Bible is one gigantic potty joke. It is. Go read it. It's fantastic. Your, your text doesn't tell you. He's probably climbing out the toilet on his way out. It's fantastic. But the passage tonight is just hilarious. If you kind of begin to understand and pay attention to the details, it's absolutely hysterical. Because what we have is kind of this contrast between the most respectable man who's ever lived while being completely not respected and Zacchaeus, who's, for lack of a better word, a bit of a goober. He's, he's funny. I mean, we, we kind of step into the text and Jesus is entering Jericho. And Jericho in New Testament times is an absolutely magnificent city. It was marvelous. It was beautiful. We know lots of things about it. It was uh, so lovely that Mark Antony gave it to Cleopatra as a sign of his affection and love for her because it was such a lovely city to be in. Herod had gone overboard, kind of sprucing it up and making it even nicer. Some of the things that we've even excavated now that we know is that it was famous for having wide avenues with sycamore trees lining either side of the road. So this is actually intriguingly one of those passages in the Bible that match 100% the actual archaeology that we have. We know this is what the town looked like. It was in a largely tropical climate. It was located kind of just, well, for you, east and just slightly north of Jerusalem on a number of different trade routes, and it was famous for having balsam trees that kind of grew everywhere, which you could take and compress and get um, uh, an oil, a balm from that they used for medicinal purposes uh, that created massive amounts of money. Uh, If you know the Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus says that the balsam um, balm was the most precious thing there was. That's what he talked about, and this is the place in Israel where it was most commonly made. So you have a city that's beautiful. You have a city that is filthy rich. You have a city that is a wonderful place to live. Think probably best kind of comparison here would be like, in the States, it would be like San Diego. Right? Beautiful, lovely. The weather's always nice. It used to have all kinds of money. Um, maybe 10 years ago, we could say, a wonderful kind of place to be. And then, verse 2 Zacchaeus is introduced. <laughs> and he's funny. There's no real word for it other than that. He's funny. Now Luke notes, first and foremost, that he was a chief tax collector. Now, there's something fun going on in the Greek here that I'm not going to get into all the weeds of, uh, but what's happening is that Luke is using a very specific term for chief tax collector, and interestingly, it's a term that's not used anywhere else in the Bible, and it's not used anywhere else in ancient Greek writing at all, probably because, uh, best guess, Luke's actually making it up, that he's trying to kind of, uh, more than uh, highlighting Zacchaeus' position 
more than kind of listing his job description, he's more kind of highlighting the character of the man. Zacchaeus was the most tax collector-ish of all the tax collectors. I know that's terrible grammar. I'm not mad at it. If you were to think of a tax collector and you opened the dictionary, it would be a picture of Zacchaeus. If you traveled anywhere throughout the entire Roman Empire and you're like, hmm, I wonder what a tax collector is like, it would be Zacchaeus. He is the pinnacle, the classic stereotype, the most perfect example of what a tax collector is. And he was very good at his job because, as verse 2 notes, he was rich. Now, you've probably heard this before, but it is true how they made their income, how tax collectors worked, is that they went around and, as you would guess by the name, collected taxes. The interesting thing, though, is the way that they earned their salary is not just to collect the tax, but then to collect over and above the tax. So if all of you owe $100 in taxes and I show up and collect $10,000, I'm doing really well for myself. Right? Because all the government's going to get is 100 bucks a head for all of y'all, and I'm pocketing an annual salary this month, and I'm good to go. And that's effectively what they were empowered to do. They could collect functionally within certain kind of guidelines anything they wanted to collect. I mean, obviously, there were kind of eventually caps at the top, but they were able to take whatever they wanted to take. And as you might guess, This is probably not the ideal way to win friends and influence people. Because everybody knows that the way he's making his money is off the backs or wallets of his friends and neighbors and family. In fact, actually, most often these tax collectors were probably Jews that had begun to work for Rome. So you had the kind of double problem of not only are they making their money by ripping off everyone around them, but they're ripping them off on behalf of Rome. So what you have here in Zacchaeus is the most tax collectorish tax collector of all time. He's exceptionally good at his task. He lives in a wealthy city. We, in fact, actually know this is one of the three cities that were um, kind of the financial hubs in this region. Uh, you had Capernaum, uh, you had uh, this one, and I'm blanking on the other one uh, off the top of my head at the moment. Uh, So he's very good at his job, but he's basically functionally just pilfered everybody around him. So as a result, is this guy a liked kind of fellow? No. He's the kind of guy that most likely, best guess, has so much money, but no good people to spend it with. Tax collectors were not known for having wholesome friends not known for having wholesome families because anybody respectable hated them because that's how they made their money. I mean, you think about it. If you had a person in your neighborhood that you knew ran the HOA and the way they ran the HOA is by charging every home in the neighborhood $5,000 and they put $300 into the HOA fund and pocketed 4,700 bucks, is the neighborhood gonna like that family? Are Are you gonna, you know enjoy that house every time you drive by it. No, right? That's the house that has fireworks going off in front of it all night long last night, right? Make sure they can't sleep. 
That's the house that, you know, periodically gets toilet papered or probably taken advantage of. That's the house that mysterious problems continue to happen to the outside of it, like eggs and rocks and things like that. It's the house that's constantly vandalized. Why? Because everybody hates them. It's why so much in the the Gospels, when you see tax collectors show up, they're always in some fairly seedy company, aren't they? Usually some illicit relationships and oftentimes working women in their company because nobody wants to hang out with these people. They have tons of money, but nobody wholesome to spend it with. So Zacchaeus, filthy rich and hated. But verse 3, he wants to see Jesus. And I, I love this. It's, it's to me so comedic. The poor man, I mean, he's not poor like financially, but just miserable man, can't catch a break. Uh, here's a man who has kind of no dignity, has no respect for himself, has no ability to kind of garner any sort of reputation. This is the kind of man that it would be cool to hate. And then on top of it, the Lord made him really short. Like so short that it's a problem. Noticeably shorter than everybody else. And so you have kind of like the consummate man, the consummate illustration of an unrespected person. Completely disrespected person. Completely overlooked no sense of honor, no sense of self-respect, no kind of value uh, that the culture would have seen in the gentleman. Ludicrously unpleasant as a human. So verse 3, he wants to go and see Jesus. Well, he can't do that. He can't see over the crowd because he's just a wee little fellow. And so verse 4, he goes running down the street ahead, again, probably in one of the wide avenues, comes to a sycamore fig. That's the actual technical term in the text. Climbs the sycamore fig, which has low-hanging branches. I love the fact that it specifies the actual species of tree because he's such a short little man, he can't climb trees that don't have low branches. Right? This is a specific kind of tree that has low branches. He's got to have some help getting to it because he's not tall enough to climb a tree. And so you have kind of just this wonderful kind of conundrum of this rich man with no respect, a man that everybody hates. I love the fact that most of us kind of assume in our heads that he's probably, you know, in his mid-20s. But who's to say he's not an old man who wants to see Jesus? I love your imaginations already kind of pegged him as being a fairly young guy. He's climbing tree. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's the kind of guy who should have some sense of self-respect. He's obviously been at his task for quite a while because he's accumulated a fairly significant amount of wealth. Yet with no honor, stuck like a cat up a tree, waiting for Jesus to show up. And I love, I love this passage. You see, Luke has been telling his gospel, and you know, the reason why we have four different gospels is so that each author can highlight a very specific or several set of specific aspects about the ministry of Jesus. 
Matthew's telling it in such a way that it highlights um, the connection to the Jewish Old Testament. Mark is telling it with all sorts of action. John tells it as an author with uh, a painter, an artist with images and, and pictures and portraits. But Luke tells it with a focus on people. And in fact, actually, Luke's been telling it on the focus with one specific kind of person. He's been telling the story of Jesus with a focus on people that are overlooked, rejected, and cast out of normal society. That's one of the primary focuses of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus interacts with those kinds of people that nobody likes. He interacts with the people who are disrespected. He interacts with the overlooked and the outcast. If you actually kind of pay attention to that, you could later go through and look at the book, and there's so many different illustrations. In fact, the things that Luke uniquely includes almost all entirely highlight that. Until you get to Zacchaeus, who again, remember what I said, he's the most tax collector-ish of all the tax collectors. He, He is the stereotype of an overlooked man. No friends, no family, no honor, no dignity, no one to love him, most likely on all of those, no sense of standing in his community. The kind of person that you ignore. That's, I think, probably our first thing to focus on to at least consider Jesus looks at people very differently than we do. It's intriguing that when you get to the actual interchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus, this would be the kind of interchange that you would expect Jesus to completely shut this man down. I mean, if you're talking kind of polite society at this time uh, in history, if you're talking with the religious crowd, Zacchaeus would have been the chief villain in the town. He's the baddest of the bad guys. This is the guy who runs the abortion clinic. This is the guy who's actively stealing from the Jews to fund Rome. He is the baddest of the baddest. Why he's so unbelievably disrespected. It's why he's left only hanging out with people that he pays to be his friends, most likely. That's what most tax collectors did. And interestingly, I think most of us in that situation would have looked at him and probably laughed at him because he's ridiculous. The rich man who can't buy a friend is stuck in a tree just trying to see Jesus because God made him too short to see over the crowd. And interestingly, is that how Jesus views him? Jesus views people obviously quite differently than we do because he sees him as an opportunity for ministry, an opportunity for love, an opportunity for affection, for mercy and grace. And so you have, (laughs) I love, it's so fantastic. Verse 5, Jesus comes to the place and he looks up and it had to have been absolutely ridiculous. Again, I mean, remember, they don't don't wear pants the way that we did. It's not like they're built for climbing trees, you know. There's nothing dignified about trying to climb a tree in an ankle-like skirt, I would imagine. Jesus, knowing his name, probably again, because he's so disreputable in the community, this is the guy everyone knows. He's the one who's stealing from the whole town. Zacchaeus! 
tree. Quick, get down, <laughs> climb out, get out of the tree. And the grammar here, the ESV, captures it perfectly. I must stay at your house today. It's not up for negotiation. It's not a, I'd like to. It's like, hey, can we be buddy? No, it's I must. This is a requirement. I have to. We have to be friends. You see, Jesus sees this man as an opportunity for ministry, sees him as an opportunity for grace, sees him as an opportunity for redemption and love. He sees him as the child of God that he is. The interesting thing, again, I think is a challenge for many of us, is to be reminded that when we see people, that is a similar sort of interaction. It's very, I know, very trendy right now as to see other people as opportunities to improve my life. And it's, it's what people can give me. Can they make me feel better about myself? Can they give me energy? Can they make me happy? Can they make me feel better about myself? Can they give me some sense of self-worth? And as a result, this is the kind of guy that you would look at and say, ah, there's nothing appealing about him except for his money. He's classless, he's tasteless, a traitor, the worst of the worst. And yet Jesus did not come to be served, but to seek and save the lost. I would suggest that maybe for us, there's a, a point there for us to consider we call ourselves Christians. We are following in the footsteps of our master. I think it might be important that we begin to learn to see people around us as opportunities for ministry instead of vehicles for our own desires. To see our friendships with our brothers and sisters in the church as opportunities to show them Jesus. To see them as opportunities to encourage. To see our brothers and sisters as opportunities to lift up strengthen, build up, and edify instead of seeing everybody around you as a vehicle for your own encouragement. This next thing here you kind of see in the passage, again, so intriguing is uh, Zacchaeus, who probably has to buy his friends, has the man who at this point is in ministry is so famous, he's functionally bringing towns with him. I mean, notice kind of in your text, we're in verse 4, 5-ish. What's verse 28? Verse 28 is where we begin the triumphal entry where basically all of the surrounding towns around Jerusalem come with a coronation event to functionally crown Jesus the king as they usher him into Jerusalem. This is the largest number of people in the ministry of Jesus anywhere. And interestingly, the last thing he functionally does in Luke's record of the gospel is to have an interchange with the most tax collector-ish of all the tax collectors. And his interchange is, I must go to your house today. I must fellowship with you. We must eat together. We must share life together. We, we have to be together. We have to be friends. We have to know each other. This would have been so shocking. I mean, like, you would hear jaws hit the floor. That's why verse 7, when they saw it, the crowd sees it, the religious elite see it, and they begin to grumble. Are you serious? Are you really serious? 
Jesus is going to be the guest of that guy? Are you serious? I mean, functionally, you think about it, like this would have been the, the equivalent, kind of obviously in much lesser categories. I'm using a silly illustration, so don't get bent out of shape about it. But if Billy Graham had come back to the Charlotte area for a visit and had called up the guy who, or gal who runs the largest abortion clinic in town is like, hey man, I gotta stay at your house tonight. How do you think social media would have handled that? Right? Would, would we've had all of the articles written in the Christian news world be like, hey, yeah, go Billy Graham, look at him reaching out to the lost? Or would he have been absolutely murdered online? Interesting, that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus goes and does it. Now, Jesus, obviously, infinitely greater than Billy Graham. I'm just using one example. Don't get bent out of shape. And that's exactly what happens. They're like, what is going on? Because interestingly, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. This is one of the points that the author of Hebrews makes repeatedly. We have it in chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. We have it in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus is so pleased with his family that even when they are disreputable, even when they are a mess, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. It's an amazing thing to think about that, that Jesus is, and again, we'll use kind of a loose colloquial kind of term of like he's proud that we're his family. He delights in us. He finds joy in us. Now, is that because we're worthy? <laughs> no, actually, that's the exact point of the Zacchaeus story is that there is not a less worthy guy in the entire book of Luke. He's only surpassed in Luke's next book by a guy named Paul. This is the next bad guy that's introduced that Jesus is not ashamed to call his brother. But what a marvelous God we have. What a marvelous Savior we have. The people that are a mess, who struggle, who hurt who have sinned sometimes quite big, who do sin and sometimes quite big, that even those he's not ashamed to call his brother. And I I think this is, again, a really shocking way to think about Christians, that we would not be ashamed. In fact, we would even delight in calling one another our brothers and sisters, our family, those that we claim, that we're excited to claim, that we're proud in the right biblical sense, boasting in Christ Jesus, to claim as our family. Why? Hebrews 2 told us, because we share the same family, because we both are of that godly family 
saved by Christ, transformed by the Spirit. I love to think about what the church, not just Christ Ridge, but in capital C Church, would be like if God's people kind of embraced this idea that we would delight in each other, boasting in God's gift of one another to us, delighting in what Christ has given, not being ashamed of one another. Now, uh, the fun part is that Zacchaeus obviously uh, meets Jesus, but he's not left in that condition, and this is, I guess, part of it that complicates it for the church. This massive loser of a man meets the Lord, verse 7. Verse 6, he climbs down out of the tree. They go to his house. Verse 7, as they're headed to his house, the crowd is grumbling. Look at Jesus. How dare he go? In between verses 7 and 8, there's probably a meal, perhaps an evening spent together. There's a lengthy period of time. And in verse 8, we see the consequences of being with Jesus. It's transformation. You hear what would be beyond shocking. The most tax collectorish man of all the tax collectors says the least tax collectorish sentence amongst all the tax collectors. <laughs> hey! That's behold, that's my translation. Hey! Lord! You've changed me. You've changed my heart. I'm, I see the world differently. I understand that I'm not a good man. He knew that beforehand. I've been changed and forgiven. I want to give my money away. Give to the poor? Interestingly, why are some of those people poor? Because he made them that way, interestingly. Right? When he's thinking poor, he's probably got them like by name. They're probably definitely in like some sort of file folder in his desk on the other side of the room. Yeah, I'll give to the poor. I know the poor. I help make them poor, most likely in some of these situations. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, now who's in the list of people that he's defrauded? The entire town. There's not a person in town, almost certainly, that's in this category in some fashion. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to restore. I, I, he's going to just be obedient. To the ends of the earth, he's going to be obedient. I mean, the reversal from verses 1, 2, and 3, <laughs> the most, verse 2, the most tax collectorish of all the tax collectors, to verse 8, generosity. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Spirit of God can produce such radical transformation. The interesting thing, I think, for uh, many of us, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here we have a man who is comedically, like, again, he, he is really, he's like a sitcom character, a cartoon character. He's like the villain from a cartoon from Looney Tunes or something like that. He's ludicrously bad. Who's changed into something that is so good, it's disturbing. I'm going to give everything away to everybody. I'm going to admit my guilt. I'm not going to protect my reputation. I'm going to restore the people that I've robbed. I'm going to restore the people that I've put into poverty the best I can. Radical generosity to, again, the point where it would be very uncomfortable. 
I mean, I'm going to be candid. If this person came here in church and started, you know, I'm pastoring them and they go this route, I'm probably going to be like, can we just pause for a second and breathe before you're in the poorhouse too? But that's where he's going. He's like, let's get rid of it all. Let's go. He is so radical in his obedience. And our God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, has not changed and will not change and is just as radical in changing people today. So what do we do with this? What do we do with a a passage like this? I love this passage, one of my favorites. Well, interestingly, I think the next section in in the chapter gives us an idea. Jesus explains, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Here you have the gospel. This is who who the Redeemer is. This is what Jesus is about. He's about salvation of people who are needy and lost. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. So what should we do as application? Verses 11 through 27 lay out the parable of the ten minus, which is basically a parable challenging God's people to spend themselves in the kingdom to spend our life and our energy, to spend our emotions, to spend our talents, our gifts, our abilities, to spend them in God's kingdom. Because God is still in the business of radical transformation. He hasn't stopped doing this. He still changes people. And it's interesting where Luke puts this, isn't it? Luke chapter 19, you have Zacchaeus, this amazing conversion story. Followed by verses 11 through 27, a challenge to spend yourself in the kingdom of God, which goes directly into verse 28, which is where we begin, really officially begin the passion narrative. He goes into Jerusalem to die. There's a reason why Luke has it right here in his story, in the way he tells the gospel, the true story of Jesus, is that right there before salvation is a changed man and a challenge to obey the Lord. It may be that maybe this year be a little bit more intentional about thinking about God's people a little differently. It's an opportunity for ministry. Thinking about the people in this room is an opportunity for love and affection. Thinking about these people in this room is an opportunity for obedience and holiness. And thinking about them as an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is right and good and true. Forgive us for our sin, for it is not right and good and true. And, O oh Lord, would you be pleased to change us for Christ's sake. Amen.